Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The Valley had seen violence before, and it would see it again. But looking at the 19 covered bodies, residents couldn't remember ever seeing anything as bad as this. 19 men, all fighting for a better life for themselves and their families, have been shot multiple times, many shot in the back. Their compatriots sought to avenge their deaths, hunting those responsible throughout the countryside. But this isn't a story from the front lines of a war zone. This scene? This was Latimer, Pennsylvania in 1897. The dead men were immigrant miners killed in their fight for outrageous things like a livable wage and safe working conditions. The Latimer Mine Massacre of September 1897 was the largest American labor massacre until the Ludlow Massacre in Ludlow, Colorado, more than 17 years later, a noteworthy follow-up whose 21 victims included women and children, obviously eclipsing this one in terms of publicity. But Latimer is far less known, hidden in a tiny coal mining region of central Pennsylvania with few histories written about it. With labor disputes all over the news right now, it seems appropriate to take a look back in time and remind ourselves that these issues are nothing new. It has long been an American tradition for workers to fight for certain rights and to go on strike when they felt their demands were being unfairly ignored. It's also long been incredibly dangerous to do so. Strikers and scabs alike have been physically beaten and sometimes straight up murdered by people determined to safeguard their own best interests. This case stands out because those who were killed in Latimer were slain under the guise of law by a sheriff's posse in a massacre that ultimately marked a turning point in American labor history. Coal mining in central Pennsylvania dates back to before the American Revolution. With bituminous coal found in the western part of the state and anthracite coal fields in the east, towns built around coal were not the easiest places to live, they were usually settled in a hurry, often without proper government infrastructure in place, as in no elected officials or police forces. The mining companies themselves often hired private investigators to keep watch over the workers, meaning that someone was keeping the miners in line, but the bosses had absolutely no one to answer to whatsoever. Not only that, but... Operators often paid workers in company currency called scrip. This is PBS's American Experience. They forced mining families to shop exclusively at the company store, which they stocked with food, fuel, and clothing. Even the tools and blasting powder required on the job. They set the prices of all those goods to assure a profit, a hedge against operating losses in the mines themselves. 
It's kind of wild when you try to mentally picture a modern day analogy. And those are the thought experiments I live for. So here we go. Let's say your main employer in town is a hospital and the people who run that hospital run the whole town. They are accountable to no one, not a mayor, not a city council, not a police force, nothing. And they don't pay you in cash. They pay you in credit that you can only spend at stores they own. And the prices of things within that store are determined entirely by them. So if they have a sense that next week is going to be less lucrative for whatever reason, it's completely within their power to tack on 10 cents per loaf of bread. And you can't do anything about it. Even if the company is still profitable and it's not the worker's fault, and even if it might keep you from feeding your family enough to, you know, not die. This is Mark Prime, a museum volunteer who worked during the Patchdown Days Summer Festival and was interviewed by a local TV reporter. Basically, the company owned the store, but they were not necessarily here to help the miners out. You would get a paycheck every so often, but they would deduct, you know, anything you needed, like food, supplies, you know, mining equipment like shovels, pickaxes, like explosives. As historian Rosemary Fuhrer said, Coal Town really is almost an instruction ground for exploitation. Mine workers take all the risks, they bring out that coal, and it's producing wealth for people who don't live there. This was the late 19th century backdrop of the city of Pittsburgh, which, within 50 years, had risen from the coal fields and residents were consuming more than 400 tons of coal per day. Throughout the 19th century, industry spread through the country, causing a massive demand for coal from Pennsylvania, which housed three-fourths of all the world's known anthracite stores. To meet that demand and rake in obscene profits, Mine owners pushed for maximum production without the faintest worry about miner safety. In The Guns of Latimer, written by Michael Novak, the average miner, or underground man, is described as, quote, a fatalist, facing death on every descent. They listened for loosened pebbles dropping from the roof, end quote. On average, the coal fields saw two or three deaths every day. But that wasn't the only risk. Quote, nearly every miner bore external signs of injuries, a missing finger, stitches, scars, limps, end quote. A lot of people had to give their lives to pave the way for energy generation, making it one of the more dangerous professions over the ages. This is a piece by Commodity Culture. In the first underground coal mines, miners toiled with primitive pickaxes and only a meager candle to light the area. The candle also proved dangerous, however, as it could cause pockets of methane gas trapped in the earth, referred to as fire damp, to ignite and explode, bringing certain death to any miner in the vicinity of the blast. Choke damp was another major concern, a form of stale air that could suffocate miners to death. Add to that the potential risk of flooding, which can and did happen regularly, and we can see that it was sometimes a roll of the dice for miners on a daily basis to determine if they lived or died. In the late 19th century, mines looked for even higher dividends by hiring immigrants whom they could pay significantly less than local Pennsylvanians. 
Those moving into eastern Pennsylvania after the American Civil War primarily came from Central and Eastern Europe, from the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission. You largely had uh, Eastern European immigrants, so they were from Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, Slovakia. With so many immigrants flooding the region, mines recruited, quote, more workers than they needed, creating a pool of able men who could step in to replace workers who were injured, dead, or on strike, end quote. So many workers allowed the mines to keep wages near starvation levels. These miners watched their wages fall by as much as 17% while also being forced to lease a house from the mining company, often being paid only in company cash that could only be used in the company store and being forced to use the doctor paid by the company. Yet somehow the mining executives were surprised when the miners wanted to form a union for better conditions. Miners in Latimer worked for either the Lehigh and Wilkes-Barre Coal Company or a smaller mine owned by Calvin Party. The Lehigh mine had cut its miners' pay, raised the rents for the company's towns, and consolidated its animal stables. Mines still used mules to pull carts. This consolidation forced the least experienced workers, typically children, to have to travel longer distances, unpaid, every day. Mule drivers in Latimer earned at most $300 a year, a good bit less than the $500 to $1,000 annual wage of an average American worker in that era, based on University of Missouri data. Now, in Latimer, these already underpaid workers were being asked to do two hours of extra work every day. Small strikes broke out throughout August 1897, ending when the companies issued empty promises. One such promise was simply to treat the Slavic miners more fairly, and even that, the management reneged on. Once the promises vanished, the miners went on strike again. On August 16th, orders were issued dismissing even clerks and foremen, presumably English speakers, for being too sympathetic to the strikers. Company police, armed with rifles, patrolled the streets, hoping to intimidate anyone considering a full-out strike. They were desperate to keep the workers in their place. The primary miners' union in the United States was the United Mine Workers of America, established in 1890, seven years before the Latimer strike. In their constitution, the UMWA listed several goals, including pay and actual money, not company script, safe working conditions, an eight-hour workday, and ending child labor. Protecting non-immigrant coal miners, on the other hand, wasn't a priority. In fact, this union made a point to emphasize its primary concern was protecting the jobs of English speakers. This is historian Gary Gersel in a documentary posted by Indiana University at Pennsylvania Libraries. You have Americanization campaigns of unprecedented severity uh, in which the national government, in cooperation with a whole host of private institutions, uh, very worried about the large number of immigrants and children of immigrants who are living in American society at the time, having lost faith in the, their capacity or their willingness to voluntarily become Americans and pledge their, their loyalty, decide to enforce an American loyalty, not only an American loyalty, a 100% American loyalty uh, upon these large uh, and largely working class populations. In fact, the UMWA threw its support behind the 1897 Campbell Act, 
which levied a three cent a day state tax on coal mines for each non-U.S. citizen working in their mines. This is Bill Bachman of Penn State, who spoke in 2014 at a memorial event. They were not considered equals as demonstrated by the three cent a day alien tax they were forced to pay under Pennsylvania's brand new, in 1897, Campbell Act. The Campbell Act said that if you weren't born in this country, you had to pay three cents a day for the right to work in Pennsylvania. As soon as this tax went into effect, according to Paul Shackle for Smithsonian Magazine, mine operators immediately took that tax out of the miners' pay, putting the miners deeper and deeper into debt. In an example from Hazleton, the city housing the Latimer mine, a mine manager had a payroll of $26,000, but only $8,000 of that was paid out to the miners. The company retained the remaining $18,000 to cover debts the miners owed for company housing, company doctors, the company priest, and their tab at the company store. Tensions rose at Latimer as August came to a close, and the UMWA sensed an opportunity to increase their numbers. They just had to quiet their xenophobia for a moment and allow entry to non-English-speaking members. That year's Labor Day, having been instituted as a national holiday just three years earlier, buoyed the celebrations of the labor movement and encouraged the strikers to continue to push for their demands. By September 8th, the small strikes that had begun in August had grown to include as many as 10,000 miners on strike at multiple mines. Mine owners were pressuring Sheriff James Martin to break the strike and arrest the miners as the situation had become far too large for the coal and iron police, which, you guessed it, was a police force formed by the coal companies themselves. Martin refused because he had certain sympathy for the miners, a sympathy that primarily seemed to be rooted in Martin's desire to remain sheriff. Martin's deputies, however, had no sympathies whatsoever. On the morning of September 10th, 1897, deputies were overheard joking about how many kills they were going to get, even discussing it openly on a streetcar. One officer was overheard saying, I bet I dropped six of them when I get over there. While another said, let them go until we get to Latimer and then we'll shoot them. Other Hazleton residents later testified that they had been concerned about the deputies using the streetcars to get to the strike and the quote-unquote careless way they had held their guns. It was this morning, Friday, September 10th, that months of negotiations and strikes finally culminated in a deadly encounter. As many as 400 strikers, nearly all immigrants, supported by the union at this point, marched to the party mine at Latimer to show support for the UMWA and their demands. Confronted multiple times along the march, the strikers were threatened and ordered to disperse and go home. Undeterred, they continued, ultimately reaching Latimer around 3.45 p.m., Waiting for them at the mine was Sheriff Martin and 150 armed deputies. By the way, that was a lot of deputies for the time period, comparatively speaking. No sheriff in rural Pennsylvania had so many deputies under his command. The majority of deputies were actually deputized within weeks of the violence, as in they were a posse formed specifically to quiet the strikers. 
The rifles they received after being quickly sworn in were paid for by the coal companies. When the strikers arrived at the mine, Sheriff Martin issued the same warning to disperse that they'd heard along the march, while also trying to grab the American flag out of the hands of a marcher. In the ensuing scuffle, at least one officer opened fire. Historian Chester Colesa. The sheriff's posse fired upon a peaceful march of unarmed striking miners while they were on the public road between the Harward Mines and the Latimer Mines. And this was one of the bloodiest incidents in American labor history. 19 miners were killed, with the dead between 24 and 35 years old, while the wounded numbered in the dozens. Several had been shot in the back and had multiple gunshot wounds, indicating for many that specific miners had been targeted by law enforcement. In one of the many Slavic-language newspapers, Amerikansko Slovenski Novini, the headline read, translated into English, Massacre of Slavs. In the freest country under the sun, people are shot like dogs. Slavs are the victims of American savagery. Bodies of the slain and wounded covered the earth. What made forgiveness for the families that much more difficult, undoubtedly, was the fact that at least 16 of those 19 slain miners were found to have their deadly entry wounds in their backs, which ripped through them towards the front of their bodies. They were gunned down, running away in that direction. Another six injured workers would die in subsequent days, bringing the total number of victims to 25. Within hours, outraged miners and their families began disrupting any peace Sheriff Martin was hoping an end to the strike would bring. He called for help, and by that evening, more than 2,500 members of the Pennsylvania National Guard arrived. National Guard troops would stay in Hazleton until September 29th to put down any further unrest. On the 12th, still incensed miners searched for Gomer Jones, the superintendent of the Lehigh and Wilkes-Barre Coal Company. The plan was to take their revenge on him as the visible manager of the mine, but when they arrived at his home, he was nowhere to be found. Further enraged, the miners destroyed Jones's home. The massacre was huge news at the time, at least within the labor movement. It drew the attention of famous, or infamous, depending on your POV, Communist activist Emma Goldman, a Russian-born Jewish woman who came to be known in the U.S. as a rabble-rousing anarchist. In a speech three days after the massacre, Goldman told a Boston crowd, quote, If those strikers had been Americans, the sheriff would not have dared to fire upon them. They were foreigners, and foreigners do not amount to anything. The foreigner is good enough to build your elegant houses and roads, sew your clothes, and do everything for your comfort. But he's not good enough to enjoy the advantages that belong to the heads of the government. End quote. By the way, those words might sound like they come from someone who wasn't a big fan of America. But while Goldman ultimately was exiled for extreme political views, I don't think it's fair to dismiss her criticisms as straight-up hatred. As she wrote after her 1919 exile of New York City, I like to remember that people contain multitudes, even communists. I'm kidding, don't send me letters. The violence was still raging when the funeral service began, attended by those bruised and broken, physically and emotionally, by the massacre. 
The first was held on September 13th, only three days after the deaths, and was attended by 3,000 people, the equivalent of more than 25% of Hazleton's total population, according to the 1890 census. Among those buried were John Feuda, 25, according to the New York Herald, but only 17 in the Philadelphia Inquirer article. Seems the Inquirer had a better source on his age, considering that reporter interviewed Feuda's mother, who, according to the article, relied on her 17-year-old son to support her and used the article to call for vengeance and said nothing but the blood of Sheriff Martin and his deputies would atone for the wrongs she had suffered. Straz, a Slavic-language newspaper, evoked the words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address by saying, quote, May their death not be in vain. May they become the patron saints of the working people in America. End quote. As the dead in the Latimer Miners Massacre were laid to rest, the newspaper coverage seemed determined to reinforce the foreignness of the victims involved. For example, the Wilkes-Barre record wrote about Dr. Fiddlewitch, a Russian official who had traveled to Wilkes-Barre with his lawyer and secretary. To explain why the doctor had arrived, the paper explained that one of the dead miners was, quote, one of the subjects of the Tsar, and the Russian secretary cabled for a thorough investigation of the affair, end quote. The doctor was to report back to Russia. Yet Russia was not the only Eastern European nation with a vested interest in the outcome of this trial. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was also watching the events closely, even lodging a complaint with the State Department when the trial was delayed into 1898. The Department of State, under what author Michael Novak called barely disguised disdain, explained that they had no jurisdiction over this case, that it was solely a case for the state of Pennsylvania. If the miners had been English or Irish, one can't help but wonder if the State Department would have taken this possible international incident more seriously. In the wake of the massacre, it's worth noting that Sheriff Martin sent mixed messages. At that 2014 memorial, Bill Bachman said, We pause today also to remember that in one of his first interviews for a newspaper, after the carnage of that day, Sheriff Martin said he was very sorry he had to give the order to shoot, but he did so in order to restore calm. The sheriff would later deny that he had ordered the deputies to open fire. Nearly two weeks after the massacre, the violence continued in the most spectacular fashion. On September 20th, a group of women, the wives, mothers, sisters, friends, and compatriots of the miners, armed with the tools of their trade, fireplace pokers and rolling pins, led more than 150 men and boys to shut down the McAdoo Coal Works. However, rolling pins were no use against the rifle of the National Guardsmen, who forced the marchers to retreat. It was no coincidence that the 20th had been the first day that coal companies attempted to resume operations since the violence began. In an article published that day, the Philadelphia Inquirer assumed that both the miners and the mines were strengthening for a quote-unquote final effort, but warned that, quote, should any show of violence be evinced against those who are willing to work, the rioters will be fired upon, end quote. In other words, those who dare to fight the mining companies might well face another firing squad. 
Demands for justice in the Latimer Massacre echoed throughout the valley as the caskets were lowered into the same ground the miners had descended into every working day. The ethnic communities in the Anthracite region came together to aid the survivors and to bring the posse to trial. As was typical in the days before insurance and funeral benefits, the community raised money both to assist the families for the dead and for the prosecution and trial. By August 1898, that fund had reached about $9,200, nearly $340,000 in today's money. It was an impressive outpouring for the time, which made it all the more confusing to people that when an indictment finally came down, it included only one count of murder, naming minor Michael Cheslak as the sole victim. Novak supposed this was a strategic choice, leaving open the possibility of later trials for the other victims. This is something we've seen in other cases, after all. Remember how supposed genius serial killer Edward Ruloff was charged with one murder at first, despite being suspected of several because prosecutors figured if they screwed up the one trial, they could get him on another without violating double jeopardy? Thing is, though, that in this case, spoiler alert, no further legal action would ever materialize. Sheriff James Martin was arrested, as were 73 deputies, each held under $5,000 bail, nearly $200,000 today. Given the sheer number of defendants, one article in the Wilkes-Barre Sunday Leader pointed out the total bail paid was $355,000, more than $13 million in today's money. That so many people were charged ended up causing controversy. Even those who disapproved of the killings didn't want to see dozens of Hazleton's quote-unquote best-known citizens convicted or even held without bail, as Novak wrote. Delayed multiple times, the trial began February 1st, 1898 in Wilkes-Barre, little more than 20 miles away from Hazleton. More than 200 witnesses testified in the five and a half weeks of the trial. All of the law enforcement officers had the same story. The marchers refused to obey the orders of the deputies to disperse and return home. The strikers were described as charging toward the sheriff and deputies. And though the strikers were unarmed and the deputies were heavily armed, the deputies testified they felt like they were in danger. The defense team leaned into the overarching xenophobic sensibilities, quote, characterizing the miners as invaders who had come to America to destroy peace and liberty, end quote. This alternative narrative soon became the reigning story with articles published in the Century magazine, a national publication, telling of the attack on the deputies and using a racist, condescending tone to discuss the miners. Pennsylvania newspapers had been pushing this racist narrative since the massacre occurred, playing to their English-speaking readers. An article appearing in the Wilkes-Barre semi-weekly record on September 14th, only four days after the incident, said that the marchers were on their way to, quote, compel the miners at Latimer to stop work, and that they had refused to obey the order to disperse, end quote. Rather than a massacre, or even a riot, as the incident would be called for decades, this paper initially called the incident a battle, implying that both sides were armed and that it was a fair and equitable fight. Another article from March 6, 1898, published during the trial, presented as fact the idea that the marchers were armed on September 10th. 
Yet the evidence presented to the court was a photograph taken at a completely different mine on a different day, showing strikers with clubs at McAdoo and West Hazleton a full week before the Latimer massacre. The prosecutor did object to the evidence, saying the photos were, quote-unquote, not perfect. In the same article, other testimony described one of the strikers firing a revolver in the air, insinuating that the strikers fired first and absolving the deputies of any responsibility. Yet none of this was substantiated by actual evidence. To the judge, Stanley Woodward, and the jury, however, this narrative was compelling. Woodward, born in the 1830s, came from a long line of Pennsylvanians. His father was the state's chief justice before the Civil War, and his brother had led Union troops as a general at Gettysburg. The jury shared similar backgrounds to Woodward, though not nearly as luxurious. Farmers and craftsmen, jurors were called from all over the area, and yet there were still sitting jurors who had worked for the defendants at various points of their lives nowadays would be considered a pretty clear-cut conflict of interest, but the rules were a bit more lax back then. In the final analysis, the sheriff and his deputies were acquitted of the charge of murder in the Latimer Massacre incident, no doubt adding another heartbreaking event in the saga of the miners lost here. The acquittal came March 9, 1898, despite that aforementioned medical evidence that showed most of the miners had been shot in the back. As the accused men walked free, the labor movement stepped back. Employees of mines who supported or participated in the strike lost their jobs. Anyone who managed to keep their jobs were specifically targeted and suffered under the harshest of conditions. According to Smithsonian Magazine, the backlash against immigrant miners was so extreme, it caused UMWA to change its official stance. In 1899, UMWA President John Mitchell called for a strike, including language for a more inclusive union, saying, quote, The coal you dig isn't Slavish or Polish or Irish coal. It's just coal, end quote. This became a rallying cry for future strikes, particularly in the anthracite regions, eventually winning better working conditions and better wages. Locals began raising funds for a memorial to the miners killed at Latimer as early as 1903, but it wouldn't come to fruition until 1972. In the early 20th century, Latimer was still owned by the coal company, a complete non-starter when it came to putting a memorial on coal company property. Wilkes-Barre, the county seat, was proposed, but quickly dismissed. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Wilkes-Barre business leaders didn't want their city to be the place to, quote, recall the deplorable labor trouble which it would be better to forget than to perpetuate in stone, end quote. It would take another 70 years before anyone was prepared to memorialize what happened in 1897. The Latimer Coal Company went bankrupt in February of 1938, with close to $65,000 in back wages still owed to miners and laborers. After months of negotiations, the mine embarked on what was called a unique experiment. The workers would run the company for a time, using whatever profits they made to pay themselves back. The banner headline on the Harrisburg Telegraph on June 1, 1938, read, Workmen to Operate Closed Mine Near Hazleton. 
the agreed-upon plan required the miners to work without pay for 30 days and another 90 days with their normal pay before they began to receive any back pay. According to the Shimokin News Dispatch, by October 1938, $250,000 in back wages, including interest, and $100,000 in debts had been paid. This was hailed as a great success, yet there are no news accounts on what happened once the bills were paid. One can assume that as Hitler had just invaded Poland, newspapers had other things to cover. 1972 was officially declared Latimer Labor Memorial Year by Pennsylvania Governor Milton Schapp. Schapp and his government organized events throughout the year and called upon Pennsylvanians to memorialize the efforts of the coal miners who died. On the anniversary, September 10th, 1972, hundreds gathered to dedicate a historic roadside marker and memorial boulder. Important union officials throughout the country attended the event, including Cesar Chavez, the famous leader of the United Farm Workers Union in California. Chavez, who spoke at the event, connected the Eastern European miners from Latimer with the members of United Farm Workers, who were also, quote, immigrants who wanted to make a decent living in the United States, end quote. This comparison between the men killed in 1897 and the migrant farm workers fighting for safer working conditions in the 1970s highlighted the ongoing nature of the labor movement. The fight is never done. Every year since 1972, a memorial service has been held, like the one in 2014 we featured in this episode. A new marker was dedicated in 1997 on the centennial of the massacre with new language, including that the miners were unarmed and marching for better working conditions for all miners. Hopefully over the decades, Latimer has served as an example of what can happen when otherwise rational men lose sight of rationality in the heat of just one fleeting moment in time. Bill Bachman again. And there's another side to forgiveness right here at Latimer. What are the sheriff's deputies who were undoubtedly the life takers that day? In the rest of their lives, did they live long enough to ask forgiveness from a higher power? Or did they believe they were merely following directions? There's an insight into the conscience of Sheriff James Martin in the years after Latimer. One eyewitness is reported to have said that the sheriff seemed for the rest of his life to have a very far off gaze in his countenance. Much I suppose like the look all of us get at one time or another when we realize something we've done just simply wasn't right. And boy, we wish with all our hearts we could take it back. I don't know if this is a bit of wishful thinking on Bachman's part or not. Without Sheriff Martin publicly owning and denouncing his own actions, I think it's a little generous to assume he felt much regret, especially based on the gaze supposedly noted by an unnamed eyewitness. I don't know if anyone asked for, much less received, any forgiveness for what happened that day. But at least in recent decades, it seems the narrative has been corrected and the tragedy honored, which is a step if nothing else. To research this story, Jennifer Erdman, assistant, professor, and chair of the History-slash-Political Science Department at Notre Dame of Maryland University, read The Guns of Latimer by Michael Novak, originally published in 1978. 
She also read contemporary news coverage and retrospective pieces by the Smithsonian Magazine. I tapped some previous research I'd done on the fascinating world of coal mining and watched too much PBS. Kidding, you can never watch too much PBS. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>